When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Tasia Eisen, author of Some of My Best Friends. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you, Deidre. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Absolutely. Um, So I am uh, a writer and an editor and the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine. Um, And I've uh, I've been a writer my whole life. And I, um, over the past five or six years, um, found myself kind of circling the same set of subjects. I was writing a lot about the way that, um, for example, writers, writers of color often find themselves pigeonholed in their work. Um, I was writing a lot about the literary canon and our sort of cultural allegiance to it. Um, And uh, I kind of gradually felt these ideas coalescing into a larger project um, and uh, noticed this pattern in uh, in culture, in my life, where um, various um, industries and uh, corporations were sort of getting very good at speaking the language of um, of diversity, of equity, um, but we're less good at backing up that language with real tangible action. Um, so I really wanted to chart that pattern in my book and sort of how it plays out in so many different areas of our lives. Um, and yeah, that was how I came to, uh, to put this project together. Now, you started the book about voice over industry. Can you mm-hmm. tell the audience more about the voice over industry? Absolutely. Um, so the the cartoon voiceover industry is a world that I've been working in now for um, coming up on on twenty years at this point. I got my start when I was uh, a very young child, um, uh, in part because uh, Toronto, where I was born and raised, um, is a very just popular hub for um, cartoon productions, and I really took to the work as a younger person. I loved. Um, I loved being, 
on the microphone. I loved that the work didn't have the pressure of of the visual that you do with sort of TV and film work, um, where so much of being cast depends on whether or not you look a certain way. Um, so I, I I do voices for cartoons. It's been a, a wonderful part time job that I've managed to keep up for um, alongside my other pursuits for two decades now. Great. You know, you talked about something in chapter one about the gains are for certain types of of women and specifically you said white women in animation. What's going Mm -hmm. on there? So there have been conversations in uh, going on in both within animation and in the entertainment industry more broadly um, for many years about, um, you know, making it a more equitable space and what a more representative industry would look like where, you know, more types of people are in decision-making positions and getting to tell those stories. And um, a lot of the gains that have been made in animation um, over the past five or 10 years have been primarily gender focused. Um, And what tends to happen when um, those conversations take place sort of only in the realm of gender is that um, the gains are made mostly by white women. So we have seen, you know, more white women in directorial positions, in uh, sort of show running positions. We've seen increases in the um, amount of female uh, characters that are represented on screen. Um, and while, you know, while that type of, of move towards parody is, is great and is necessary, what happens is that, um, is that, people working across various other creative positions in other parts of the industry, whether they're the actors, the showrunners, the script writers, the producers, um, when they are racialized people um, and racialized women, um, we're not seeing the same sort of changes in terms of the number of people or percentage of people being led into the industry. Um, So with that essay, it was really important to me to um, sort of acknowledge the progress that has been made, but to also, um, but to also speak to how far there still is to go, and to kind of caution people who would um, claim that the problem has been solved. That um, you know, that there's still there's still a lot of work that needs to be done before animation is an equitable space. You know, we see this all the time in listings, all ethnicities welcome. Why is this a loophole? What's what's going on with that? Um, so I, I talk about the phrase all ethnicities welcome as a as a phrase that quite often um that, that I saw quite often in cartoon casting calls. Um especially, you know, when I was younger and sort of coming up as an actor. Now it's much more likely that um there will be um, sort of more culturally or ethnically specific language geared towards a role that will say like, oh, we're seeking, um, we're seeking black actors to read for this role, or we're seeking Asian actors to read for this role. Um, but with, with the language of something like all ethnicities welcome, it sort of allowed, um, it meant that the cartoon industry could for a long time sort of point to that as evidence of um, of equity, of progress, of saying, see, anyone who wants to can read for this role. And therefore, um, you know, this is evidence of how sort of 
uh, how fair and how equitable and how diverse our industry is. Um, but the strange thing about language like all ethnicities welcome is that even if you do end up casting um, a racialized actor to play a role, the um, the chances of that character still being drawn and animated as white it, are still overwhelmingly high. If you look at the numbers of um, animated characters who just the the respective sort of percentages of them that that come from a range of different backgrounds, um, the vast majority of characters are still drawn as white people, uh, of human characters anyway. Um, so when there was sort of that that turn in animation, when it was very much sort of part of the public consciousness in the summer of 2020, when we saw a series of very high profile white actors stepping down from playing black characters, um, the new sort of rule that kind of emerged from that was black characters should be played by black people. Um, and my, my, my response to that, my counter to that, which I, which I go into detail into in the book is, well, what black characters, <laughs> if there's still only, you know, a very small percentage of them that are, um, that are scripted and animated as black, um, then it doesn't really matter who's doing the voices. You're still sort of preemptively shutting out um, a huge contingent of, of racialized people from entering the industry. You know, in your book, you talked about the problem of what black sounds like. Are there people pretending to be black by the sound? And what, what, what is going on? I, I guess what I meant by that um, the, is the sort of, is the question of who gets to say what black sounds like. So I, I was describing a situation in which black actors are being asked to read for black characters, which is good. Um, but a lot of what I've seen is that what those characters, you know, are supposed to sound like, are allowed to sound like, are asked to sound like, are still very much dictated by by white showrunners, um, who quite often, you know, who, in, in my experience, sometimes have a very specific idea of a very fixed idea of what black should sound like. Um, so it leads to this strange situation where um, once again, you know, we have this, this vast wide pool of black talent who are um, expected to go into the studio and read for the very small proportion of roles that have been scripted as, um, you know, to sound like what, the creative team's idea of black should sound like rather than, you know, giving more creative control to the actor themselves. That's really interesting. Now you always talked about the tiny white people that are always around. Tell us about that one. Yeah. So I, I borrowed that, that, that figure, that, that image of, of the, the little white man from, from James Baldwin. Um, it's, uh, uh, a turn of phrase, an image that he used to use to sort of to describe the um, presence and pressure of the gaze and attention of a white audience. Um, it's something that uh, Toni Morrison has cited as also coming from from Baldwin. It's something that the two of them used to talk about, um, and it's really a it's a metaphor for the the this idea of a white audience that has 
certain expectations of what a uh, of what a racialized writer quote unquote should produce um and and the process of writing like my process of um of developing as a writer um has very much been um has very much been about sort of trying to stop worrying about those expectations trying to unlearn those expectations because a lot of those expectations are um you know, sort of baked into the way we talk about teaching, writing, um, a literary education. Um, so I, I used and kind of riffed on Baldwin's figure of of the the little white man to help me think through a lot of those things in the book. You know, um, you had an audition, and I thought this was really a, a sad situation when you went there and they asked you, "Could you be more street?" Tell the audience mm-hmm. about that one. Yeah. Um, so that was, uh, I, I described that scene in the essay about cartoons. And um, that audition specifically was, it was not a cartoon audition. It was for an on-camera project. So one of those, you know, a film or TV project where um, my my face and my body would be on screen. And that that is a situation where, um, sort of like we were talking about before, you see the very kind of narrow idea of what black is allowed to uh, is supposed to sound like. Um, the casting directors on that project had a very particular idea. They, you know, they 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 saw me walk into the room. They knew how they had scripted that character, and they thought, okay, we need this. Like we need we need this this nine-year-old child to sound a certain way. And that was the bit of direction that they gave to me was that we need you to make it more street. Um, and as a kid, I just found that incredibly confusing. Um, none of them, of course, ever explained what they meant by it because to, to, to clarify it any more than that would kind of veer into very sort of uh, overtly racist language. Um, but I have to be honest, it, 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 it put me off of TV work very early. And as I think one of the reasons that I did gravitate to cartoons is because cartoons was a space where um, that sort of, you know, because you could go into the studio and feel invisible, that sort of dynamic was so much less likely to happen. Now, there was a quote in your book. And you said, quote, black suffering has always been a form of North American entertainment. Tell us about that. Um, So that quote comes from an essay about um, very much about the the Internet, the digital media economy and how the the form of the personal essay and a certain type of personal essay um, has sort of participated in that in that space. And um, coming up as a younger writer online, I it was sort of I understood that or I, I, I felt as though it, it, as someone who you know sort of sensed this kind of exciting new wave of writing happening on the internet, um, one way to sort of gain admission to this exciting new world of, um, of digital publishing was to sort of be willing to write about one's 
pain, one's trauma. Um, and I often felt the sense from editors that that is very much what they wanted from me. They didn't, you know, the, my, <laughs> the, the extent of my value um, lay in being willing to make it sound like my subject position was synonymous with suffering. Um, and I do think that's connected to a sort of larger pattern of, uh, of storytelling in, in North American culture. Um, and there's a, a sort of, a there's a body of work, um, that, that does talk about this period on the internet where, you know, the, the genre of the personal essay, especially in kind of the, the sort of early 2000s and 2010s when it really reached its peak, um, it was very much about writers trying to talk about the sort of the most salacious and shocking thing that had ever happened to them. Um, but if you were a writer of color, you were expected to, the shocking thing you were sort of expected and often urged to write about was the difficulty of life in your own body, whether or not that was something that felt, you know, true and authentic to the writer. Um, so that, uh, that essay is also, <laughs> a lot of the essays are about kind of, uh, buying into particular fictions and unlearning particular tendencies. And, and that one very much, very much as well, um, is kind of about, uh, sensing that that's what editors wanted and realizing that's not really the kind of artist I wanted to be. That's not what I wanted to give to them. I did not want to build my work around this, this idea of suffering. You know, you talked about um, a situation where you were told to go home, light some candles, get high, and think about how you could uh, be sexier on stage. What was your reaction to that? <laughs> um, I was so that, that that's from an essay where. Um, well, I, my my reaction to that, honestly, at the time, was that. I guess that's what I have to do if I want to be taken seriously as an artist. Um, I was at the time um, trying to make it in the music industry. Um, and a lot of my main artistic influences at that time were, um, I mean, they were, they were white women, white female singer songwriters who played the piano, right. Uh, artists like Tori Amos, like Fiona Apple, um, who quite often, you know, their work was very, very melancholy. Um, and that was very appealing to me as a teenager. I also, you know, wrote songs that were about <laughs> um, my uh, minor teenage melancholy. And um, in this particular meeting with, um, like with a performance coach, a career coach, um, I got the distinct sense that um, I was for whatever reason, not, um, the reason likely being because of, you know, how I present and the fact that I'm not a young white, I wasn't a young white woman, um, that it was sort of more expected of me in the eyes of the industry that I, um, that I be kind of sexier, um, that I wasn't allowed to just kind of dwell in my, <laughs> in my misery um so I mean it was it was confusing it was a, like being told as a younger child maybe you should sound more street um and certainly the um kind of 
obsession with uh, sort of one's image, one's brand, and how that uh, how the music industry is very much dictated by that is one of the reasons I you know decided not is why I left it. I decided not to pursue um, that work. So you went to law school. I did. Life, yes. Did life get better? What was your experience there? Did you see some of those same racial situations? What's um, I was I was at first very beguiled by law school, very just kind of um, I liked that it would teach me an entire system of thought, of argument, um, and it just it, it appealed to the kind of work ethic that I have um, and I valued the idea of being able to build a life that was sort of devoted to thinking and arguing and writing and speaking and building a narrative. Um, and I'm still very glad that I went, um, even though I decided not to practice, but in terms of your question, you know, did I see the same racial situations there? Um, I sort of, I, I, my my experience of kind of the way that the law pays lip service um, happened in a different way. And it was sort of in the material that I read. Um, so it wasn't, I mean, <laughs> certainly it was present in the dynamics of the law school itself, but the what really sort of shaped my experience and understanding there was the sort of, was my growing awareness that um, as much as the law speaks the language of objectivity and neutrality, um, it's so unwilling to contemplate the realities of lived experience and the way that the letter of the law acts differently upon different bodies, um, different subject positions, different life situations, and, you know, how it does come down so much harder on the people who don't have the same kind of power. And, like, I knew that going in, I knew going in that the law was a sort of, you know, generally sort of, uh, that the law was a racist system and that I was going to sort of try and enact positive good from within this broader system that was bad. What I wasn't prepared for was just that, that split between, you know, the reality of, of a case and, um, the, kind of very insidious neutrality of the language used to describe it. Um, and it, it's it's not even like it just offended my sensibilities. It was that I, I couldn't, like, I couldn't understand it. Like, it was so, it was difficult for me to get my head around and difficult for me to kind of, uh, to kind of do good legal reasoning because it was so hard for me to separate the story of a case from the way that power acts upon people in the world. And you have to be able to separate those things in order to write a good exam answer, be a good lawyer. <laughs> um, so I, I really struggled with that. Now, you, you talked about some of the very popular books that are out here today. And uh, you brought about um, looking at the book Dirt and the other black girl. What are these books saying about our society? Because many times we can see these books, read these books, and they're giving us a message. Mm -hmm. 
I think, I mean, I, I loved the other black girl. I thought that was, um, it was, it's, it mounts such a razor sharp critique of the whiteness of the publishing industry. Um, and does so in a, within a very propulsive, um, very engaging narrative. Um, and I really admired that. Um, what was interesting to me, um, especially about the sort of uh, indirect relationship between those two books, is that, um, you know, when American Dirt came out, it, you know, it has been this incredibly successful novel um, and, and, you know, continues to be, but critically was very much taken to task for what, uh, what readers saw as very stereotypical um, depictions of, of Latinx people um, and of Mexico. And so it was just interesting the way that um, the other black girl um, it's, it was, uh, the book was sold in the wake of the kind of American dirt discourse. And it was interesting in the way that the time felt so ripe for a critique of the whiteness of publishing, because those were the conditions. A lot of people argued that made a book like American dirt possible in the first place. Um, because they're, because the, you know, the rooms in which, that book passed through and the decisions about that book were made were staffed almost exclusively um, by white employees. There was nobody there who could sort of, you know, question whether a Latinx reader might uh, take issue with certain descriptions or depictions in the text. Um, And in the other black girl, there are scenes that describe the exact same thing. Like there is a manuscript that the main character Nella um, uh, reads and is supposed to report on to her boss and notices that there's an incredibly stereotypical um, depiction of a black character and is really wrestling with the question of whether or not to say anything because, you know, the book is poised to be a blockbuster and it's one of their big authors and she has this low level um, job in which she's underpaid and she doesn't want to upset her boss. Um, so it was, um, it, it, it felt, it was sort of dizzying to read so soon after the American Dirt, um, snafu had happened because it almost felt like those patterns were so baked into the industry that, um, that Zakia Harris, the author of The Other Black Girl, could sort of, um, almost like she could predict that situation possibly before it even happened, depending on the timeline in which the book was written. So um, I just thought they were two really kind of interesting data points um, on uh, that are part of the broader story of, of the reckoning that the publishing industry is trying to have with itself as it's trying to um, kind of correct past exclusions and make a more, um, you know, create a more equitable industry. Um, so yeah, I, I was just really interested in putting those two in conversation in the book. Now you also talked about, um, your travels outside of Canada. I thought that was fascinating. Share Mm. with us something about that. Sure. Um, so I, as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, I was born and raised in Toronto, 
And uh, as somebody who works in the arts um, in Canada, have quite often been told that, you know, if I really want to be successful, what I really have to do is move to the US. Um, And I was told that across various pursuits, I was told that as a, you know, as a child in the in the voiceover industry, I was told that, you know, you'll never get cast in a Pixar blockbuster from up north. And they were right, I never was. (laughs) Um, I was, you know, when I was dabbling in music, um, I heard you know, I, I, people told me that, oh, if you really want, like, if you want to make it big, you should, like, try to work with an American producer. Um, when I was in law school, you know, a lot of my peers uh, took jobs in New York um, because there were more opportunities there and there were better paid opportunities. And I resisted that idea for a long time. I thought, well, if the if the only thing that's truly kind of limiting me is the fact that I happened to be born here, that mistake is not mine to pay for. Um, and it was only when I had the incredible opportunity to spend a month in New York, uh, on a, on a creative opportunity I had there that I, I sort of, I got it. Like I, I sensed sort of the energy of the creative community in the city and could kind of had the chance to envision myself there seriously for the first time, um, and it was just absolutely intoxicating to me. And um, I, it's funny to be having this conversation now. I, I, I took on a, a new job last year um, and have worked remotely for the past year. And I'm now actually um, moving to New York next month. <laughs> wow, that's exciting. Yeah. Thank you. Now, you, you talked about being raised in a mixed family. Um, how did this shape your experiences? I think it made me very, I, I was always very aware of how, especially because, you know, I grew up in a, in an overwhelmingly white neighborhood. I was always very aware of how my family, how my parents, um, how we, their children were perceived, um, acutely aware. And I think, um, it, uh, probably had, you know, it, it, it had a, a role in why I'm interested in the questions that I am in my writing and why I write about the subjects that I do is that it's sort of <laughs> impossible to be unaware of these things if, you're, um, if your family, if your body um, is always kind of, if you grow up in a place where it's always a bit of a curiosity. Now, what is the message you would like to leave the reader with after they read your your book? Um, I would like to leave them with the message that um, the language that we use matters. It's it's so important, um, especially in a in a cultural moment where it is easier than ever to say something while meaning nothing it is all the more important to be careful and to be, to, to say things that we feel we can, you know, that, that we know we can stand behind that are genuine expressions of our values. Um, It's important to me that, you know, there be mutual acknowledgement that real change takes time. Um, Although the book is very interested in these sort of moments where, 
um, these moments of kind of quick fixes of equity that aren't fixes at all, I do want to acknowledge that they are often an important first step. Um, it's just that, you know, the real thing will be slow and we have to be okay with that. Um, and I, I hope I've managed to articulate something that feels familiar to the reader, um, that they've seen before in, in their own lives, in various industries, in advertising, and that they just quite haven't had, uh, the words to put to before. So I hope, uh, I hope the book is an experience of, of pleasure and recognition in that regard. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Tell us, what is the next project you'll be working on? I'm still trying to figure that out. I, I have ideas for both um, a memoir and a novel, and I am trying to figure out which one is going to come next. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for your time.